The History Channel Original Podcast. It's a summer night in Wichita, Kansas. Two brothers, Dan and Frank Carney, are about to make their dream come true. It's opening night for their new restaurant. They've just renovated the tiny building. And it's charming, positively romantic. Check tablecloths, dark wood, exposed brick walls, and a menu featuring something that in 1958, hardly anyone in Kansas had eaten before. Pizza. The brothers fire up their secondhand oven, and then catastrophe. Soot and smoke pour out of the oven, filling the dining room. The brothers have to turn all their customers away. When they investigate, they find that a bird has built its nest deep in the oven's flue. The opening night of Pizza Hut is a bust. But the Carnies don't give up easily. They repaint the dining room, repair the oven, and hold their grand opening the very next day, luring customers with free pizza. Soon, there are lines out the door. And before long, people all across the United States have a new favorite food. The average American will eat over 6,000 slices of pizza in their lifetime. And more than half of the $46 billion spent on pizza around the world in 2020 went to just two chains, Pizza Hut and Domino's. But back in the 1950s, most Americans had never even heard of pizza. It was an obscure ethnic food few had encountered. Every article in the 1940s and 1950s that even mentions pizza has a pronunciation guide and a description and a short explanation. They're not assuming anybody knows what the heck they're talking about. And believe it or not, the story of how pizza went from an Italian novelty to a global superfood starts in middle America with two sets of enterprising Irish-American brothers, one in Kansas, the other in Michigan, who will go on to found two of the largest restaurant chains in the world. As soon as pizza hit America, it changed instantly because the flour that we're using in America, the dairy products that we're using in America, even the ovens were different. I'm Sean Braswell. In this episode of The Food That Built America, we explore the origins of Pizza Hut and Domino's and how these two upstart companies and their founders forever shaped the American palate. How bold was it of Dan Carney to think that he could just come along and franchise pizza when pizza wasn't an established food yet? Steve Green is the publisher of PMQ Pizza Magazine. How bold was it of him to do that? Uh, It was bold. It was bold and genius. Dan Carney was a dreamer, a business school student with aspirations of franchising. His younger brother Frank was more pragmatic. The brothers came from a family of 12 in Wichita, Kansas. At age 26, Dan was working at the family grocery store, supporting his wife and children. Frank, age 19, was in college. Dan is the leader. He didn't make it through business school, but he got a little bit of business learning. Frank's more analytical. And together, they were a very nice balance. In 1958, Dan saw a magazine article about this new food, pizza, and thought, I could make that. Scott Wiener is a columnist for Pizza Today magazine. 
The post-World War II era is such a time of resourcefulness and all these great stories of people figuring out how to do things at that time. And Frank and Dan Carney are a perfect example of that. They had no idea how to make pizza. Their mother had given them $600 from her late husband's life insurance policy, just over $5,000 in today's money. The Carney brothers used it to buy a secondhand oven and renovate a rundown bar in Wichita, Kansas. But they had never even tried to make pizza before. And the most important element of a pizza is without a doubt the crust. And he had no idea how to make a dough. And sure enough, what they made looked nothing like the thick doughy pizza in the magazine article. It was thin and almost crispy. So the Carnies used a French bread recipe for their pizza crust. Food writer Mike Rossetti. They certainly didn't care. And their customers didn't care. Likely because they had never tasted a quality real pizza before. But it doesn't matter. If the customers like it and it can be successful, yeah, so be it. And for many Americans, that taste, inauthentic as it was, would come to define their experience of pizza. I would describe Pizza Hut's flavor as the pan pizza. It's a pizza that's fried in a pan, although it's baked, but technically it's fried. So you have a crunchy crust. It's, my pan is always going to have some meat on it. So I would say that it's a hearty, savory pizza that eats like a meal. As the Carney brothers prepared to open their new restaurant, they received a free sign from the Coca-Cola company. It was part of a deal to carry Coke products. But there was a problem. The sign only had space for nine letters. Once the brothers used the word pizza into space, there was only room for three letters. Dan and Frank racked their brains for a brief name for their new restaurant. Finally, inspired by the look and shape of their 500 square foot building with its short squat roof, Dan came up with a solution. Pizza Hut was born. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. I think it's amazing that two brothers who really have no connection to pizza historically or culturally, that they're the ones who commodify it and make it a huge food in America. Scott Weiner. But, of course, the version of pizza that they commercialized is very different from the food at, the, at its origin point. No one really knows the origin of pizza, but the food goes back for centuries. A type of pizza was made at bakeries in late 18th century Italy. Those early pizzas were really peasant food. It was the kind of thing that you ate on the street. They were being baked in bread bakeries and sold in little portable tables out on the street. It was cheap, quick snack food for the people. Adam Richman is a television host and author of Straight Up Tasty. And in fact, many of the uh, antica pizzerias in, in Italy, especially in and around Rome, there's very little cheese, very little sauce. It's not like we have in America usually done with a very simple 
uh, marinara sauce, tomato-based sauce, buffalo mozzarella, and basil. There are as many types of pizza as there are regions of Italy, but that pizza never truly made it to the U.S. Libby O'Connell is a cultural historian and the author of The American Plate. The first pizzeria is opened in America at the turn of the century, 1905. Um, Lombardi's Pizza down in Little Italy. Uh, but let's face it, it's not, a, it's not something that's growing across the nation. There may be small pizzerias here and there in different urban areas where you have a southern Italian community, but it hasn't hit the big time. Pizza is delicious. So why wasn't it more popular in those early days? Italians were largely discriminated against when they came to this country, and so as a result, their food didn't spread very rapidly. There was significant anti-Italian sentiment in America at the time. Congress even passed legislation to limit immigration from Italy and Eastern Europe and ban it from Asia entirely. Then something happened during World War II. You know, one of the kind of important theaters for American troops during World War II was the Italian front, right? Invaded before D-Day as the soft underbelly of fascism. Bryant Simon is a history professor at Temple University and author of Everything But the Coffee. And what did soldiers do after? They went out in Rome and other places in Italy and they found pizza. Thousands of American troops were stationed in Italy during and after the war. And they think this is great. And they come home and they're like, well, why isn't there any pizza here? And so, you know, there's enough of this kind of question asked in enough places that food makers, and they're not necessarily Italian, begin to say, oh, well, I can make pizza. I can figure out how to make this. They love it, but that's not enough to really change the market. What will really change the market are two guys. They were the ones that had the right formula, the right set of circumstances, the right location, uh, the luck of the right vendors that they picked. But you had thousands of people all over the country starting pizzerias at that time. They just happened to be the ones that, that rose to the top. If you look at it, if you look at it in a Darwinian way, these were the lucky survivors uh, of this test that was happening during the 50s, because that's when the golden opportunity, the age of pizza really came. At the time in the U.S., increasing numbers of families were leaving the dinner table behind. Pizza helped bring them back to it. It has a communalness to it that many of the post-war foods don't have. So if we think about this post-war food landscape, which is increasingly individualizing meals through the TV dinner, through the microwave, pizza is one of those things for a long time that defies that. And it creates a moment where people can eat together. The rise of the family of the 50s required that there be a pizza hut, a place where a family could go in one place, they could go in their car, they could, they could get out, they could have a destination and have something that everybody could, everybody could share. The Carneys weren't the only innovators to found a pizza place in the 1950s. There was Little Caesars, Shakey's, and one more. Two years after the Carney brothers got their start in Wichita, Kansas, another pair of Midwestern brothers opened a restaurant. They would take the pizza business to a whole new level and become Pizza Hut's biggest competitor. Tom and Jim Monahan grew up in Michigan during the 1940s. Their childhood was very different from the Carney family household, which was crowded with 12 kids. 
The two Monaghan brothers lived in an orphanage for several years. Their father died young, and their mother was unable to care for them. They had to grow up fast. So the Monaghans, Tom and Jim, they're both orphans, both really hardworking and industrious people. And Tom was determined to rise above his station and overcome the sort of adverse circumstances of his birth. Adam Richman. He wanted to become an architect and he was actually enrolled in architecture school. While in architecture school, he actually bought a struggling pizzeria to help pay for school. The restaurant was called Dominic's. Its menu featured pizza and submarine sandwiches. It was located in Ypsilanti, Michigan, near the campus of Eastern Michigan University. Scott Weiner. The owner of the pizzeria that they bought gave them like a 20 minute talk on how to make it and then split. And here they are, these two Irish brothers raised in an orphanage who'd never made pizza in their lives before, owning a pizzeria that would become one of the most successful on planet Earth. But in 1961, the business was not at all what the brothers expected. Tom Monahan thinks that he's gonna be a part owner of this business, that he's gonna work three and a half hours a day, and then he's gonna be able to go to architecture school with the rest of his time. He thinks that owning a restaurant is gonna be a part-time job. Is nuts. That clearly, that's, that's the perspective of someone who's never been in the restaurant business. Jim Monahan, two years younger than Tom, was a mail carrier and taxi driver when the brothers first embarked on their venture. His brother was a little more of a free thinker, a little bit more of an idea guy, and not so much of the driven, hard-nosed businessman that Tom was. And it was frustrating for Jim. For a long time, he was making less money than in his job as a mailman and working harder. And both brothers saw little in the way of return on their efforts. Mike Rossetti. It's quite crazy to think that uh, essentially full-time working almost seven days a week or seven days a week and going to school full-time can be done easily. Uh, but when you're young and energetic and, and you don't know much, it does make a lot of sense. Eventually, Tom had to make a big decision. And God bless him for it because he realized that he should cut his losses on going to school and he put in all his energy to the pizzeria. No longer in school, Tom tried to increase the restaurant's profits. I think that was the first thing that, um, that Tom Monahan eliminated was subs you know, when they got busy. And um, they also had six inch pizzas, which um, seems odd. Um, these days, it's a very tiny pizza, but it was something that was popular with students at the time. What Tom found that these were just a hassle, and um, the six-inch pizzas were more expensive to make than many of the other larger pizzas, which he was amazed at. It was a success, and the now-crowded pizzeria prompted him to make another innovative decision. Today, it defines how most of us get our pizza. Delivery. Since Tom doesn't have a lot of space to serve dine-in customers, he decides to use the roads essentially as his restaurant and offer delivery, which at the time when he started offering delivery, restaurants offered it every once in a while and pizza was certainly a deliverable food, but Tom Monahan definitely pushed the scale of delivery to be the center point of his business model. I quickly found that uh, selling pizzas to college students was very good business, and that was a strategy uh, that uh, they employed you know, throughout the early years. 
Tom also rebranded his growing pizza business, changing the name from Dominic's to Domino's, and adding the iconic logo with two dice that the company still uses today. Tom's hard work and innovations put Domino's on the path to success, but they alienated his brother, Jim. And Tom wanted to do things his way, and he was working very hard, and he expected his younger brother to work as, as hard and, and as be as dedicated. But being the older brother, he also likely expected his younger brother to follow what he was doing. Tired and frustrated, Jim decided to leave the business and return to being a postal worker. He famously left the Domino's organization and uh, sold his stake in the company to his brother for their beat-up VW Beetle. In point of fact, had he retained his stake in Domino's when they were eventually sold to Bain Capital, he would have made $800 million. Instead, he got a VW Beetle. Bad, bad, bad trade, bad trade. But it would be years before Domino's Pizza would make its mark. Meanwhile, down in Kansas, Dan and Frank Carney were moving fast to leave theirs. Less than a year after opening, Pizza Hut was doing well. But Dan Carney had a crazy idea. He didn't want just one restaurant. He wanted to franchise fast. Scott Wiener. It's totally bonkers that these guys who have no idea how to make pizza, within about a year of them opening their first restaurant, they start franchising. I mean, I know people who work on it for decades before they start thinking about how to franchise that model out. So it's just really gutsy to have done that in the early 60s. They opened a second restaurant in the state capital, Topeka, and then six more in Kansas. Then they opened 36 other franchises in Oklahoma, Colorado, and Texas. Dan drove around inspecting the franchises to make sure they were maintaining quality. Frank spent hours in the kitchen trying to guarantee the same flavor at every Pizza Hut. They prepped and delivered their ingredients fresh to each franchise. Adam Richmond. At this time, the Carney brothers had so many ingredients that they were putting on their pizzas and trying to process it all that actually Frank Carney developed a rash on his hands from handling them. He decided to try something new to simplify production, freezing. They can create the crust, freeze the crust, create the toppings, freeze the toppings, create the sauce, freeze the sauce, and ship it all so there is one uniform flavor throughout. The toppings are processed in advance and pre-cooked and just need to be reheated on site. They called these frozen ingredients goodie bags, and they did so well that the Carnies were able to expand their operation beyond the middle of the country. As part of that expansion, they made it very cheap to be a Pizza Hut franchisee. Too cheap, says Steve Green. Dan Carney's decision to charge really low rates for a franchise fee seemed like a good idea. Uh, you certainly don't want to overcharge and, and miss out on the opportunities of people to come in. Unfortunately, he was too low and didn't recognize that it was too low for a while. But the Carney brothers pushed ahead into new markets, including the Northeast. And that's where they ran into a problem. Some folks in the Northeast were already very familiar with pizza, with the more authentic, thick-crusted Italian version. Italian-Americans. This is where it came from, and people have a deep understanding, and they, they also have an emotional attachment to pizza. So now you're treading on my pizza. You know, this is an insult. You call this a pizza? This just isn't recognizable to me. 
for me and for people like me that grew up on authentic Italian food, on authentic Italian pizza, Domino's and Pizza Hut resemble authentic Italian food as much as I resemble Emily Dickinson. And it's because Pizza Hut's proprietary thin crust pizza was nothing like true Italian pizza that the Carney brothers tried something different. Pizza Hut decided that the way to get by on the East Coast was not to compete with the beloved pizzas that people are used to on the East Coast, but to come at it from a different direction. So this is where they came up with a thicker style pizza that wouldn't be confused. You know, we're not trying to copy your pizza. This is something different. We're a pizza hut. I'm not gonna say that they're not pizza because uh, hundreds of millions of people would disagree with me. New York chef and author Rocco Despirito. They're selling pizza, people are buying their pizza, people think it's pizza, and they're enjoying it. And that's terrific. And uh, the fact that I grew up with a, a mom who made pizza at home regularly just puts me in a place with a different perspective. The truth is that American pizza serves a different purpose. It's made to move. Joanna Saltz, editorial director of Delish. With less sauce, the cheese isn't sliding all over the place. With more dough, the pizza is a little bit more protected. So in a lot of ways, what Pizza Hut and Domino's have created is they've created this form of pizza that frankly travels well. Some might say that it's a sacrifice from traditional Italian pizza, or even the more artisanal pizza that is so popular now. But at the end of the day, I mean, most of the time you're starving and you're so excited to have this guy bring it to your house that you'll kind of eat whatever he shows up with in the box. I take my hat off to the founders of Domino's and Pizza Hut because they, they are definitely providing a valuable service. They're selling a product people love to consume and they've made a lot of money doing it, you know, and I think every entrepreneur's dream is to do exactly that. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As Pizza Hut expanded its footprint across America, Tom Monahan was attempting to do the same thing with his Domino's chain, Scott Wiener. Domino's ended up pushing away from college campuses, and a lot of new franchises were in residential neighborhoods, which seemed like a really good idea at first, but didn't turn out so well. Because in the time it takes you to deliver two pizzas to one address in a neighborhood, you could have delivered 20 pizzas to three addresses in a dorm building. As it struggled with logistical issues, Domino's fell behind. By this time, Pizza Hut was everywhere. The family restaurants were outfitted with checked curtains and tablecloths and comfortable booths. Maybe growing up, I just like thought about Domino's being scrubby because they had this little tiny thing in a strip mall. And then a half a block away, there was this glorious red roof Pizza Hut. But five years into his new endeavor, things weren't going well for Tom Monahan. He was 
living in a trailer with his wife. His office was like a dingy hut, and he had to close a bunch of stores. And then to keep the other ones afloat, he had to borrow some money. He borrowed $400,000 using his tiny trailer as collateral. And he knew that if he defaulted on that loan, he was out. Fortunately, it worked. And they survived. Tom Monahan decided to move forward by refocusing on Domino's strongest asset, delivering to college campuses. The first GI Bill, enacted after World War II, saw an increase in college students across the nation. Veterans who wanted to continue their education in college or vocational school could do so tuition-free up to $500, the average cost of a year of college at the time, and they received a cost-of-living stipend. Historian David Eisenbach. It was the Second World War that got the American economy going again, and there was a great fear that once the war ended, we would slide back into a Great Depression. To avoid that, uh, the government initiated the GI Bill. And this essentially, what the GI Bill essentially does is just propel millions and millions of Americans into the middle class. And that sort of sense of America, as a huge middle class nation, that's really produced by the GI Bill. Historian Bryant Simon. Nothing before or since has lifted so many people out of the working class, into the middle classes and into the upper classes as the GI Bill. It is the engine in many ways of post-war growth and, and cannot be overestimated. By July 1956, when the bill initially expired, almost half of the 16 million World War II vets had gotten education or training through the GI Bill, more than doubling college enrollment. So before the Second World War, college was really the preserve of, a, of an elite, uh, mostly young men uh, with money. Uh, thanks to that GI Bill, that really expanded the opportunity for people who never could have dreamed of going to college and getting a higher a degree uh, to actually experience college life. Domino's definitely filled a niche when we were young, hungry, and uh, mostly sober college students. You know, they work from home. Um, most of them live in dorms, don't have access to a kitchen. So, and they're staying up late night, sometimes even studying. And, uh, you know, they need late night sustenance that's affordable. And uh, pizzas is the perfect food, you know, for college students. And delivery service provided a key competitive advantage for Domino's. The Carney brothers tried to start their own Pizza Hut delivery service. But unfortunately, they bought a bunch of Cushman scooters and delivered pizza during the wintertime uh, at the University of Nebraska, and uh, things didn't go so well. Uh, as a result of their experience, they decided, no, no, this is too hard. So Domino's doubled down on its advantage. Tom Monahan says, it's the delivery of the pizza that's going to make me a successful businessman. He brings some extra innovation to them. Libby O'Connell. He will invent a pizza box in an insulated back that keeps the pizza warm while it's being delivered. We'll also have a sterno heater in the trucks that he will eventually use. He is the man who makes it possible for people to get hot pizza delivered to their door. And later, Monahan came up with an ingenious guarantee. Delivery in 30 minutes or your money back. Adam Richmond. And I remember just the notion of 30 minutes or it's free being this rallying cry. And people would be timing from the time they hung up the phone and 
people were ordering just for the gimmick alone. And, and Domino's was always deeply proficient at those gimmicks. By 1977, Pizza Hut had grown from the Carney Brothers' original location in Wichita to over 4,000 outlets. Today, there are more than 18,000 Pizza Hut locations around the world. Dan and Frank sold the business to PepsiCo for over $300 million. Dan dedicated himself to philanthropy, sitting on the boards of several charities. He still lives in Wichita. Frank was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2009 and died in 2020 at the age of 82. Meanwhile, as the Carney brothers cashed in, Tom Monahan pushed Domino's to new heights. By the mid-1980s, it was the largest pizza chain in the world. He used his wealth to buy the Detroit Tigers, the year before they won the 1984 World Series. Monahan sold his shares in the company for $1.8 billion in 1998. He co-founded the Catholic Ave Maria University in Florida. He also became a major political donor and has faced scrutiny and boycotts for his political beliefs. He still lives in Michigan. His brother, Jim, spent his life bouncing from one career to the next and died in 2020. Today, after decades of cutthroat competition, Domino's annual sales have reached more than $16.1 billion, outpacing Pizza Hut. They fit very well into a society that is demanding delivery more, demanding affordable delivery and um, unfortunately also fits in well for a society that's staying home more often, that needs to stay home more often during you know, 2020 with the unfortunate uh, rise of the pandemic, that sales has, have grown you know, quite a bit for Domino's this year, I think 16% year over year uh, for the second quarter of 2020. While neither Domino's nor Pizza Hut brought authentic Italian pizza to America, their impact remains enormous. The funniest thing about the Domino's and Pizza Hut authenticity argument is that even though they are not authentic Italian foods, they have done more for the spread of pizza and the awareness of pizza in the United States than all the authentic pizzerias combined. And today, both companies have even more franchises internationally than they do in the U.S. I think pretty much every town has to have a Domino's, or at least a Domino's close by. In fact, in Tokyo, I was dumbstruck by the amount of Domino's and the amount of Domino's delivery bikes. I couldn't believe it in, in Japan of all places. American style pizza is now a truly worldwide phenomenon. On the next episode of The Food That Built America, a young entrepreneur in Pennsylvania falls on hard times. After the bankruptcy, he was determined to restore his reputation. But the H.J. Hines Company would find a new way to strike it big in an era of change. This is really sort of the Wild West of food laws. Where other business leaders saw an obstacle, Henry J. Hines saw an opportunity. That's what Hines became known for, the best product the cleanest, the healthiest product. And he always said, you know, a good product, packaged well, will find its own marketplace. And turned it into a multi-billion dollar business. Heinz didn't invent ketchup. Heinz did ketchup better than anyone else.
This episode of the Food That Built America podcast was written and produced by Sean Braswell and LaToya Tools and edited and produced by Maeve McGoran. Jesse Katz, Jim Pascarella, and Mary Donahue were executive producers. Sound designed by Chris Hoff. Special thanks to McKamey Lynn and Tracy Moran. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. Please make sure to subscribe to the Food That Built America on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more great history podcasts, check out History This Week from History or Flashback from Ozzy. Say big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big